1: Welcome to Mortification of Spin. This is Amy Bird, and I'm excited to be talking with you today with my usual co host Carl Truman, professor over at Grove City College in Pennsylvania, and Todd Pruitt, influential reformed tweeter, who we all look forward to his next tweet, and we mm. are holding our breath mm. for that one. But what we're really excited about today is our guest, who is a return guest, and we like this guy so much that we actually accidentally caught him. He must be on our speed dial or something like that, because we accidentally caught him when we were going to interview a different guest, and he was gracious to us then well, as well.
2: He's, he's like the Alec Baldwin of Saturday Night Live. He just keeps coming back. I <laughs> like that. That's
1: so good, Todd. Yeah. That's exactly what he's like. And, and we're talking about our favorite Michael Allen. He is John Dyer Trimble, Professor of Systematic Theology and academic dean over at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And he has a new book out, which we are very excited to talk about, called Grounded in Heaven, Recentering Christian Hope and Life on God. Hi, Mike. How are you doing?
3: Hey, thanks, Amy. So this is a legit interview for real? <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> yes, this is a real call. This all this right. Set it up, made an appointment. We're good.
3: <laughs> Fabulous. Happy to be with you all.
1: Yeah, thanks, so man. I was very, very thankful to be able to read this book. Growing up in a more fundamentalist background myself, uh, I remember kind of having a little bit of frustration with the over-spiritualizing everything to where that saying goes that uh, you're so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good, and it was, it was kind of exciting in my um, early adult years to learn more about embodiment and in, in eternity and the new heavens and the new earth. But um, your book is kind of a correction to, to an overcorrection there as I was reading it. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about what made you want to write the book and, and the overall gist of it?
3: Yeah, I do think there has been a correction that itself needs to be corrected. And in the Reformed world, since the time of Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bovink, we've really tried to emphasize the way in which Jesus saves humans and the way in which God wants to come and dwell on earth. Mm-hmm what Christians have always affirmed that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life fasting. Yeah. And that's all good, but sometimes it goes from being a productive reform to being a parasitic. And I, I think oftentimes, even in reformed Presbyterian evangelical churches, somehow those focuses can crowd out just the center of the story that we're made to be with God. And that the the best thing about the new heavens and new earth is that God is there with humanity. And so uh, it just seemed to me that we need to respond and we need to recenter things. Right. Not only affirming all the bible says but also what it says is most important.
1: Yeah, so there were a couple terms that I thought maybe it would be good to define in the beginning for our listeners so that as we may be using them in the conversation. And one, pretty much what you're talking about here is beatific vision. Could you kind of explain what that means?
3: Yeah, so I I talk about returning or retrieving the idea of the beatific vision. It's a, a term that's been used by Christians through the centuries to describe the blessed or the happy vision of God, the visio Dei. We focus on the sense of sight or a vision because that is so intimate. Often mm-hmm. the Bible will speak, you know, Moses wants to know God more fully. He asks to see God. God says, well, no, you can't see my face and live. You can see my backside. And so... Mm-hmm that occurrence in Exodus 34, but we're promised that we will see God face to face. It's meant to accent the intimacy beyond merely visual sight, but it's this notion of closeness, of proximity, um, of the the closest possible kind of enjoyment of God's presence.
2: Michael, I'm wondering, what have you seen in terms of how we've moved away from that, particularly, as Amy mentioned, in In kind of you know reformed circles, I I think about um, my denomination, the PCA, and I've heard some great preaching on uh, the new heaven and the new earth. Some good correctives that that have helped us understand that that life in the age to come is not us as translucent figures sitting atop a cloud somewhere, Mm. but but a real embodied, recreated world for us. That's wonderful. But as I was reading your book, I was reminded once again of of how little. I've heard on what you've just been mentioning, which is what I heard a lot growing up that we will be before the Lord and and that Mm -hmm. that's the great thing. But, but I've heard a lot less of it.
3: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And not only do we hear less of it, or not only is there a silence about it, but also sometimes there's a mockery of it. Right. And, you know, perhaps the most common thing that's somewhat benign, but it's pretty telling is that a lot of pastors feel like they need to reassure their congregants, don't worry, you're not simply going to be singing to God forever. And maybe the extreme version is the, you know, the, the lute and harp upon right. the clouds. broad notion of don't worry, you're not just going to be singing and worshiping God forever is actually wrong. Right. I wouldn't right. presume that we're not doing other things. I have every expectation there'll be more to it, but the Book of Revelation several times suggests that we will forevermore be singing to God. And so we ought not talk that down. We ought to try and help people imagine that, to think about how that's a joyful thing. that's something that makes us more, not less human. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to the degree that that doesn't seem enticing to us, the problem is all on us, and it's all going to sin. Yeah. You know that's a really common thing. From that, there are other things, folks like Tom Wright or Richard Middleton have have really attacked notions of commending heaven. Um, and to the extent that they are attacking the idea that uh, sort of the cloud-like or even the intermediate state is our great hope, fair enough, that's not our ultimate hope. It's a, an intermediate hope. Uh, but they seem to go further. Middleton will talk about how songs regarding heaven are like lies in church. I find that wow. just to be, uh, you know, at a certain level, Remarkably disrespectful of earlier Christians, of martyrs who in their moments of struggle have not by and large sung of of happier days ahead here on earth, but longing for the heavenly presence of the Lord. Uh, Negro spirituals looking ahead to not merely an earthly Canaan, but to a heavenly home. And it seems to me that, you know, for fairly well-to-do Westerners to kind of dismiss that kind of language is pretty remarkably disrespectful.
2: You know, you you mentioned Negro spirituals there, and I I have drawn on some of that in my ministry as a pastor to people who are in chronically painful situations. They're they're dealing either with a chronic disease or a chronic situation where their family has been so shattered by the sin of someone else that it's not going to get a whole lot better in this lifetime. And they are desperately looking forward to heaven. And as a pastor, I can't imagine not commending that. And, and yet like like you said i've I've heard that idea almost mocked and
3: i mean i've I've in a small way gone through the autoimmune disease, and precisely the the strength that enables some suffering in that regard is is not that my body will be somehow better two weeks from now, mm-hmm. rather that I can enjoy a a bit of the taste of god's presence, even perhaps in the hospital um, and that that I can be sort of long to greater prayers, to greater aspirations than merely healing or remission, but that I can actually long for something more substantive, the presence of God, that kind of satisfaction. Right. Your written fathers knew that a lot of us moderns have forgotten.
4: Yeah. You point there towards the more theological you know, there is the pastoral significance of, of what we mm. have been talking about. But in the book, you also draw out the theological significance of it. And there's one, uh, there's one sentence that struck me as particularly powerful. It's on page 86. The silence of modern Protestant divinity regarding the doctrine of the beatific vision may render us susceptible to tone deafness when it comes to the words of Jesus' promise that if we have seen him, we have seen the Father. Now, you and Scott Swain have been at the heart of uh, revival of the classic doctrine of God and of Trinitarianism in, in Reformed theology. Uh, do you see, well, clearly you do, but perhaps you could unpack how you see the beatific vision as sort of standing at the nexus of uh, what we might call experiential divinity, perhaps, and
3: theology proper. Mm. Yeah, well, that, that sentence comes in a chapter where I'm talking not merely about the call to retrieve an earlier Christian hope in the beatific vision, but also how Reformed forebears, folks uh, like John Owen perhaps, would talk about it in a particular way, believing that the Reformed would want to slightly nuance the broader Catholic conception of the beatific vision and to focus it more specifically because of certain texts in the New Testament Upon Christ, where when we see Christ, we see the Father. Uh, The glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. We don't reduce God in his eternity to any historical episode or occurrence. But by his grace, we do believe that Christ is mediator. He is the one who reveals God. As John one eighteen puts it, no one had seen God. Jesus, the Son, he has interpreted him to us. So uh, there really is a, a significance in the beatific vision being Christ-centered and Christ-focused that in Him we have revealed what it means to be God. And that's mysterious, that's transcendent, that's holy, uh, that unsettles our expectations and it, it, it shatters some of our sin-distorted uh, categories. But it is a reality that is glorious. It's why the figuration is perhaps the the capstone of his earthly career in terms of revealing what he's all about, uh, showing us the very glory of God here amidst human beings, and not to our undoing, but rather dispelling fear and coming closer and offering comfort and calling his disciples to stand up. Um, And and so it, it does seem to me that to the extent that we don't pay attention to the doctrine, to the extent that we're focused on peripheral things, earth and embodiment, uh, we're going to miss the the significance of knowing God more fully in all His glory.
1: Mm. Yeah, I love your corrective with that because it isn't a heavenly mindedness that is no earthly good. You're actually arguing that we need to return our focus to heavenly mindedness to have any kind of earthly good, really, mm-hmm. and and just God's generosity is overflowing. But there's this kind of reciprocity there, as scripture says, like from him, through him, and then and then offering that back to him again. And and you have a really good section. Um, I wanted to ask you this question to kind of set it up. It's just how does heavenly mindedness shape the way that we think about sin?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the realities is that Christians come to have deeper problems. Now, we come and sin is being addressed, mm-hmm. uh, but our perception of our problems grows. Um, it's one thing to know I've got issues. It's one thing to know I've got problems. It's one thing to know that circumstances are hard or even my own character is distorted. It's another thing to know that I am acting in a manner that I can enjoy the vision of God for which I'm made. You know, that's why the, the Methodist ethicist Stanley Harawass will sometimes say sin is a theological achievement. He means of all the ways you might construe your screw ups, coming to know that you're a sinner biggest problem is before holy God. And that as much as my economic troubles and my physical ailments are real, the biggest problem is I can't see God. I can't be with him in that kind of intimate way. It seems to me that the beatific vision and heavenly mindedness reframe that. And maybe it helps us read the Bible more. You know, Genesis 2, 7 says, the day they eat of the forbidden fruit in Eden, they'll surely die. And it uses the the most of Hebrew form, the infinitive absolute to suggest will happen right away. And isn't it interesting? They don't croak. They go and they have kids. The story continues. But I would argue they, they die and they die in the most real sense possible. And to the extent we, we sort of think that's not the case, we're probably influenced by materialism. But that's the most definitive sense of death you could possibly imagine, our fixation mm-hmm. on our our bodily existence is missing sort of the main thread there. Uh, and so I do think focusing on this helps us lament more deeply. It helps heal yeah. far more ardently the failures of ourselves and of those around us in and outside the church. Uh, it helps us start to speak more like the psalmist, perhaps.
2: That's good. I, one of the things that's been kind of um, moving through my mind is as I've just been listening to our conversation uh, thus far has been um, on the issue uh, dealing with i, I suppose in, in the direction that we've already been um, going, the word that kept coming to my mind because it 's a word I see a lot in our circles is is renewal and I, I suppose one of the questions I have a lot is are, are we are we moving towards um, the renewal of all things or the recreation of all things. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Because I see a lot right. about renewal and I almost think now, are, are we talking post-millennialism here where there's not going to be a recreation, but just a, a you know, a, a, a renewal. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm not hearing a lot of it, almost as if perhaps there's some embarrassment over, over the judgment that's to come that Jesus spoke so graphically of. Right. And um, and and I'm just wondering if if renewal is a is a word that kind of lessens the punch of of what Jesus actually says.
3: Yeah, it might be. And I, I didn't perhaps get at that as much in this book as in my bigger volume on sanctification. But the Bible talks in two sorts of ways. It's one thing to say your heart needs to be circumcised. It's a different thing to say your heart needs to be taken out and replaced. Yeah. Yeah. HGTV has two sorts of shows: and the Reno show, <laughs> and the rebuild show. They're not the same thing. Um, and, and the New Testament will use the language in those two tracks as well. So mm-hmm. there's language of renewal, yeah, yeah. And then sometimes there's language language of new. Um, and and it seems to me the importance is to to catch what each of those is meant to evoke in us. way mm-hmm. not to tone down either but to affirm the truth of both. And, you know, the image of renewal rightly gets at the idea that God saves us. God justifies the ungodly. While we were still enemies, Christ died for, you know, that language of, to use an anachronistic modern word, our identity. We are the ones who are actually adopted, saved, resurrection, etc. On the other hand, the language of newness or of replacement of the old with the new heart, the old self with the new self, is meant to emphasize the radicality that it goes all the way down and action from outside our earthly sphere. It's it's not going to be modern progress. I would suggest this pushes against the post-millennial idea. Mm-hmm. But, but that's a further argument that would demand other evidences as well, that it's going to involve an, an interruptive uh, transcendent sort of activity, which is why Jesus will regularly speak of birth from above, the, probably the better rendering than, than birth again, birth from above, from on high, uh, from heaven itself. And, and both of those are important. I think you're right. We probably are in an era where for a lot of reasons, apologetic, Evangelistic, perhaps tried to emphasize continuity to to sell that idea, Uh, and we don't want to lose that.
4: How do you handle the the criticism, Mike? It's a sort of, I suppose, a Marxist kind of criticism, but you find in liberation theology, and liberation theology has has influenced more orthodox strands of theology as well. That uh, there's a real danger in being so so emphasizing heaven that one comes to accept remarkably unjust status quos. You know, the most extreme example might be Germany, 1933 to 1945. Okay, we won't do anything about Hitler because you know, we're focused on heaven. Uh, I won't do anything to help the homeless in my town because, well, you know, they'll get their reward on the other side of the, of the great divide. How do we manage to maintain a balance between being heavenly-minded, but also realizing that the gospel, certainly as it's portrayed in in the gospels and the book of Acts, and in some of the aspirational things that Paul states, does seem to point towards some kind of social transformation, maybe not of society as a whole, but certainly within the church, within the locale of the church. How How do we avoid reading your book and swinging to the... The opposite end. Uh,
3: yeah, that that's a great question. It's important to feel the the weight of that. I mean, the New Testament speaks in different ways. Uh, I think even of the slavery issue, for instance, uh, it's one thing for Paul to write, not to outright call for uh, sort of the abolition of one master-slave relation, but clearly to prompt that uh, pedagogically to lead a master to realize that he ought to free slave and treat him as a brother and providing a theological argument. On the other hand, Paul writing uh, in Ephesians chapter 6 is going to address masters and slaves, and there he'll address the slave and he'll argue that they ought to, uh, in a certain way, continue uh, in their role, uh, and that they're to do so not somehow pretending that the gospel entitles us freedom from all earthly entanglements. Uh, And it's notable he doesn't, as with marriage and with parents and children, he doesn't suggest slavery is a good thing and he doesn't give scriptural precedent for it, but he nonetheless calls them to endure in the Lord and he provides hope. And it, it seems to me that in both cases, in the case of somebody in a position of difficulties being called to endure because it's out of their control, and in the position of somebody with a power or a capacity to act in some sort, a resource that in both cases, it's going to be hope that motivates. Hmm. It's going to be hope that motivates somebody in a position of suffering to endure, like the Israelites of old when they did, Uh, like early Christian martyr in Acts 7, for instance, who sees Jesus standing and and he dies like a Christian. Um, Or those in power, those who are going to willingly give up something that by earthly rights they might claim but out of love for neighbor, what's going to motivate that? It's going to be a greater hope, a greater desire. Um, and so it, it does seem to me that this cuts against the grain. You know, you think about maybe political debates. So many of our debates, different sides have different approaches, but all of them are basically trying to suggest we'll solve a problem without anyone having to suffer too much or pay too much. We'd like to find a solution that somehow doesn't involve a cost. You know, it just strikes me that in most cases, that's not the case, that you, it, it costs something to love others. It costs something to benefit others. Uh, and we need motivation. And heavenly mindedness has through the centuries been that which was, it sustained Israelites in exile. It sustained martyrs in persecution. And it's also sustained remarkable philanthropy and generosity. Uh, remarkable giving up of one's supposed rights for the sake of others. Yeah. I would argue with C.S. Lewis but it's actually the heavenly minded person who's going to be of most earthly good. Mm.
2: Michael, that's a great transition into the kind of final big section of the book with, where you deal with asceticism, mm-hmm. self-denial. And I'm thinking Amy might have a question on that. Well, I mean, we were hoping she would because we, we want her to meditate more on self-denial. She's going to, she's going to
4: ask if women are empowered in
2: heaven. <laughs> <laughs> that's the obvious but, but in all seriousness, it is, it is a great transition into that, into that last section, which I found to be really great in light of, of where the book had been going, because that's exactly where the kind of conversation has gone now, that there is something about this heavenly mindedness that is to um, generate a self-denial. And I had a lot of really blessedly uncomfortable moments reading some of the things that you'd written, being reintroduced again to scriptures that unsettle us. Mm-hmm. It kind of unpack that connection a little bit more, um, how heavenly mindedness gets us to self-renunciation. and
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's something just elemental. If, if Jesus is the greatest good, and if he's one who gives us parables where we talk about selling everything that we have, that we might buy a land in which there's a, a hidden treasure, uh, if he talks about willingly you know, giving up your life that you might find it, Um, if he talks about seeking first his kingdom and righteousness and other things following, uh, then I think we do need to return to what was a a more classical reformed posture as opposed to more modern reformed posture. And that is, there is an evangelical and a Christian form of asceticism that's just essential.
2: Um, Which oftentimes gets dismissed as a relic of Roman Catholicism.
3: It does. It's either legalistic or it's hierarchical or it's viewed as otherworldly. Sort of. To be sure, I'm sure. I don't want to deny anyone's experience in any of those ways, but it's worth noting that it's the single most read section of Calvin's Institutes is the golden booklet of the Christian life. Yeah. Uh, and, and when I ask students and pastors, that is never their suggestion. Mm-hmm. All the things reform people or talk about, they go to scripture alone, and justification by faith alone, and predestination. Um, but, you know, the notion of the Christian life as being one of self-denial um, is absolutely essential. And we can think about the way in which Sabbath practice has gone by the wayside, not because mm-hmm. there's has been argument against it, it's just, it's just kind of lost in our culture. Uh, the way in which fasting has not played a major role, even though Jesus tells us that he was He was the life of the party during his time on earth, but there will be a time when it's appropriate Mm -hmm. to fast because we don't see him and we long for his return. And I mean, I'll confess that that has not been a hallmark of my life or of the lives of of churches with which I've been most connected. Um, And those are just basic areas where Reformed folks, I think, can learn again from other traditions around us and especially from those who've read the Bible before
2: us michael you uh um, you mention at the end of the book which helps kind of put a uh a, a real personal angle um on this which i which I found to be helpful because there is so much in the book that is um if you like devotional in in a really helpful way and 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 just to kind of frame it in personal terms to to let the reader know that you're not talking about this as some disinterested observer you mention your health fairly serious uh, when when this was diagnosed and, and kind of a harrowing experience, but just an autoimmune problem that, that you're facing. Would you just uh, update our, our listeners on how you're doing, what your health is like these days? And
3: yeah. I mean, this book really was written out of uh, the happenstance of studying patristic and Puritan texts on heavenly mindedness and asceticism. And then suddenly I went through a period where, you know, i I lost 50 pounds in a few months and sweats and fevers and chills and fatigue and, and doing a battery of tests and surgery and hospitalization. I'm glad I'm three years later feeling much better, able to function, perhaps putting on a little bit too much of that weight again, <laughs> you know, and, and I try and be a good patient. The body matters and it is the temple of the Lord. And so I, I try and diet and I take a lot of medicine and I'll be a, a doctor's getting tons of tests just tomorrow, actually. Um, But what I've learned through that is also, it's not for nothing, as I was about to go under the knife for a major surgery three years ago, I was meditating on Philippians 3 that week and remembering that, you know, my God is not the belly, but I'm a citizen of heaven. And through this, I, I think I've been able to better own the fact that Paul, who suffered a lot of ailments and who struggled in far more ways than I have or probably ever will, if you look at his prayers, his prayers were so fixated on mm-hmm. extending love to brothers and sisters and on being faithful to Jesus and having his hope be more resolute. And so I've learned, I think, through this a bit more and more, and I, I pray over the years more so still, not just to ask that I'd be sustained in this, but that actually uh, I would long for greater things through mm-hmm. this. And And it's been encouraging to see sisters and brothers who also struggle with chronic illness, chronic pain, disability, who are remarkable witnesses in that regard as well.
2: That's really encouraging, and thanks for sharing that. And I, and I do just want to say to those that are listening, um, and I know I speak on behalf of Amy and Carl here, uh, you'll be greatly helped by Dr. Allen's book, Grounded in Heaven. If you're a pastor, you really need to get this book because it'll help your preaching. It will help you make sure that you're not underemphasizing what needs to be emphasized a bit more, and vice versa. And and your preaching will be helped. You'll you'll be better equipped to have um, uh, good biblical wisdom when you're in the hospital room uh, with people. And so uh, I know that the three of us uh, would encourage our listeners to uh, to get this book. And and Michael, we're really glad that you wrote it. Thanks for uh, for taking the time and the study to to give us this book because it's um, it it was a blessing to me as I was reading it.
3: Well, I appreciate that very much.
2: Well, Michael, one of the things we talked to you about not too long ago was uh, this wonderful project that has come out from you and, and from Scott Swain um, at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, the Paidea Center. And um, it's a wonderful ministry. If you, if you haven't visited their website, we're going to provide a link for it on our page once again, um, because they're really doing some wonderful creative work in terms of theological discipleship. Um, But uh, Michael, tell us just a little bit about the conference that's coming up in January.
3: Yeah, we've been running Reading groups, 200, reading classic texts on God, and and folks are going to converge here now in Central Florida in mid-January for two days on the 10th and the 11th of January. We'll have some presentations related to the theme for the year, Knowing the Triune God. Our own Blair Smith, an expert on the early church, is going to talk about not just the idea of adoption, but the fatherhood of God as early Christians understood it in the fourth and fifth centuries. Carl is going to come and speak on in what ways the Reformers did or didn't uh, change or continue to teach the same doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, And then my colleague and our president, Scott Swain, is going to talk about interpreting the Bible in a Trinitarian way. So we'll have some rich presentations. We're going to be Worshipping together throughout the day. We're going to be sharing meals on campus and we're going to have larger and smaller group discussions. So it's meant to be more interactive than your normal conference. It's meant to be an occasion to to network and to build community with folks uh, of similar interest. We're going to have folks coming, I know, from the UK, from Indonesia, from all over the US and Canada. Um, and folks can come even if they're not in a reading group. There are a lot of folks who will be there who haven't been able to, to participate. So we'd welcome everybody. It's not a bad time to be in Orlando. <laughs> so Absolutely.
2: Well, that sounds um, exciting. One of the things that Michael did not mention, though, as he was describing the, uh, the conference, is that, um, and, and I think his concern is that uh, once you find this out, that they won't have enough room at their venue. But I will actually be leading a seminar on interpreting the Bible through dance. <laughs> so um it'll it'll be quite exciting and uh would encourage you to uh to be there the place of leotards and public worship that kind of thing so um anyway does that, does that sound about right Mike
3: that works well I'm still counting on Carl's guided tour of Epcot for folks <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, <you're> <laughs>
2: That's good. Yeah. Um well we are uh, we're just so glad that uh that our friend Michael Allen chose to be with us again once again risking his reputation. Um Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks again for the book. Thanks for the work that you're doing. Your friend and colleague uh, Scott Swain was was speaking at an event with with pastors I was at last year, and one of the things he said that he sees himself, and I know you share this this kind of mindset, is that you know he sees himself as a uh, a study resource for for pastors. And and when I read the work that you two produce, that that's what it feels like. I feel like I'm being equipped uh, better and better as a pastor. And so we're really grateful for your labors and pray that they continue. So thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Happy now to our, uh, yeah, happy Thanksgiving. Absolutely, <laughs> they do that in Orlando, right? We do. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Not, and it doesn't have to be vegan or anything like that. It can be the real deal.
3: We have all sorts
4: for all types. Yeah. Vegans have nothing to give thanks for. <laughs> <I'm
2: laughs> They're typically a pretty miserable lot, yeah. from what I've, from what I've been able to see. Well, uh, thanks so much, uh, everyone, for joining us uh, for this. Uh, installment of Mortification of Spin, we do hope that you will go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you will be able to register for a complimentary copy of Dr. Allen's new book, Grounded in Heaven, Recentering Christian Hope and Life on God. It is an excellent book. Go there and you just might win a free copy. Also, our friends at the Paideia Center have graciously made several registrations for the conference in January, available to uh, some of our fortunate uh, listeners, and so be you five can, winners of that. There will be five winners, and so that's mm-hmm. a great, great mm-hmm. prize. And so you'll want to go over to our website mortificationspin.org to register to win uh, a copy of Dr. Allen's book or or a registration to the Piedia Center's uh, conference coming up in january in orlando florida so uh, we're excited to make those things available to you and thank you to the people who, who made those available to us we're also a listener supported podcast and if you would feel so interested or so moved to make a contribution to the alliance of confessing evangelicals that would be greatly appreciated so that they can continue to offer you content like we have been offering you here so thank you so much for joining us and until next time we'll talk to you later on mortification of spin
4: there's a lady who's short All that glitters is gold And she's buying
3: the stairway together.
0: Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about...
4: She was a mountain hiker. She actually hiked the Alps, which was stunning to me because I had... Mostly thought of her as a sufferer, which she was. Mm-hmm. But she hiked to the Alps while Spurgeon kind of rode along in the carriage with huh. his public here and talked theology and books and the sort of things that Todd and Carl would do. But Amy <laughs> would be <laughs> hiking.
1: That's right.
0: That interview is next time. Join us then.
1: Well, should I introduce you with the whole formal title, John Dyer Trimble? Absolutely,
2: professor?
3: yes, absolutely.
1: Okay. Absolutely. Or,
2: or you can just say I teach theology at RTS Orlando. I, I say, man, we need to give the whole title. This man has worked for that
1: title. Okay. Yeah.
2: You know. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, now that um, Kelly Capic has introduced me as a public intellectual, Todd, <laughs> <laughs> I expect great. to hear that <laughs> from
4: you. I, I will. You're a publicity intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>